This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you for the invitation. It's been really exciting for me. And today, I, this talk is going to be about brains. And I'm not going to actually talk about primates or humans, but I'm going to come to some conclusions about humans and culture. Um, so this is a brain of a bottlenose dolphin, a back of a brain of a bottlenose dolphin, and this is a brain of a small marsupial. And you can see the neocortex is really large, and I'm going to talk about the neocortex today very specifically for a couple of reasons. One is that it's the part of the brain that's that's changed most dramatically in mammals over time, and in humans in particular, they have an extremely large neocortex. It's the part of the brain that's involved in cognition, language, um, and things like tool use. The, the question that we're interested in addressing in my laboratory is, is how the brain gets more, more complex or how the neocortex gets more complex. So we know that early mammals had a neocortex that was very, very tiny and had a few cortical fields. And cortical fields are the functional units um, of, of the neocortex. And we know that as brains um, evolved, and particularly primate brains, the neocortex became a really, really enormous cortical sheet uh, that, that now is proposed, humans are proposed to have hundreds of cortical fields. So the question is, how do you get from a very, very simple form to a very, very complicated form. But this, this, is a, this is a serious problem to address because these types of changes, certainly from early mammals, are 200 million, 200 million years of changes. And we can, we can even see the sorts of changes that have occurred in the human line over a six million year period. So how do you address these changes? And there are two ways that you can, you can get at this, this question of evolution. You can look at, you can do, you can say, what has evolution produced? And the way we can understand what evolution has produced is we look at brains and bodies. We do a comparative approach. So I can look at a lot of different brains using a variety of different um, techniques, electrophysiological, anatomical, um, and I can say what sorts of changes have come about. Um, the problem is evolution is, amusing, uh, is a moving picture, and the life of an individual is a moving picture. So anytime we, we study an individual or a mammal, we're taking one snapshot of that moving picture of life and trying to figure it out. So what we do with a comparative analysis is we, we look at a lot of snapshots and try to put this moving picture back together. However, well, well, these sort of comparative studies can tell us what evolution has produced. They don't tell us how phenotypic transformations occur. How do I get more cortical fields? How do I change connections of a cortex, which in turn changes behavior? Um, and this is where studies of development uh, come into place, because the evolution of any aspect of the body, the brain, is actually the evolution of developmental mechanisms that give rise to that aspect of the phenotype. So I'm gonna, my talk is going to fo- focus a little bit on this. Okay, so comparative analysis, this is many, many years of work. This is a cladogram, um, and these are neocortices, and you're going to see these sort of cartoons throughout the talk. Um, this is a neocortex. These red and blue and yellow areas indicate cortical fields, and the most important thing to take away from this is that you can have common ancestors, which we don't know about, humans, macaque monkeys, cats, squirrels. There is a, a constellation of cortical fields that all species possess, even in the absence of use, and this is due to inheritance from a common ancestry, and it's also due to the way genes are deployed in development, but that's going to be a different story. Um, so there are similarities in brains. Even a, my brain is very similar to a mouse brain in some ways, but it's also very different. And here are some of the si- sorts of differences you're going to see. This is a flattened view of the neocortex. This is the front of the brain. This is the top of the brain. This is a macaque monkey, and this is a mouse. And they're not drawn to scale. This would actually, this mouse neocortex would be a little t- tiny part, portion of the macaque neocortex. And what we can see is that there are changes in the size of the cortical sheet. There are changes in cortical field number. Um, There are changes in the relative size of cortical fields. There are changes in the connection patterns of of homologous cortical fields. And of course, the question is, to what extent um, are these differences due to genes? 
that are intrinsic to the developing neocortex. Have they changed in species over time? And they probably have. Genes associate with the development of the body. Because the body changes, we use the body differently, and you cannot think about the brain without thinking about the body. There's a middleman there, right? The brain is not embodied itself. It needs the body to give it, provide all information about the world. Um, epigenetic influences, and by this I mean um, uh, sensory-driven dr- or environmental or context-driven changes um, to the brain and the body. Or is it some combination of these factors? Is any creature due to just one sort of thing, or is it some combination um, in different species o- over the, their, the course of evolution? So I'm going to give you some examples of comparative work and changes in peripheral morphology that, that give us some clue um, up, um, about what the answer to, to that question is. So this is one of my very favorite examples on the planet. It's a duck-billed platypus. And this is a real animal. This is the bill. And what's really cool... <laughs> Yeah, and I had it. And the reason I'm also interested in the body is when I um, started working on different animals in Australia, I had to catch every single animal I worked on, and it gives you a really, really great appreciation for the body and how important it is because they're hard to catch. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, so what's really cool about the platypus is that it has mechanosensory receptors that are exquisitely sensitive t- to touch. Um, interdigitated with um, electrosensory receptors on its bill. And when it does anything important, capture um, prey items, um, mate, it closes its eyes, its ears, and its nose, so all it has is a bill. And if you look at its neocortex using electrophysiological recording techniques, this is the um, front of the brain, this is the, the top of the brain, this is the representation of the bill on the cortical sheet. There are a number of cortical fields. So within the somatosensory cortex, it takes up about 90% of the entire representation of the somatosensory cortex. And if you look at the cortex itself, it takes up about 75% of the entire cortical sheet. This animal is one big, huge bill. Um, (laughs) And it's hard to imagine. This is called cortical magnification. And the, the question is, is this due to genes intrinsic to the neocortex that have made this cortex one big, huge bill? Changes to the body? It has to be, to some extent, due to changes in the body. The environment and how the, 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 the animal uses the um, body and the environment. And I, I gave you the example of the ductal platypus because it's, it's an extraordinary example of cortical magnification. But we must appreciate that we see this across the board in a lot of species, including humans. If you look at the um, evolution of the supralaryngeal tract and the specializations of this body morphology, we have an expanded, neo, uh, expanded representation in somatosensory cortex, motor cortex, premotor cortex um, of this specialized structure, which we call Broca's area. So the, they are following the same rules of, of evolution as other species. I'm going to s- s- uh, uh, switch really rapidly to experimental manipulations in peripheral morphology. So you say, okay, to what extent is the, the ratio of incoming sensory inputs to the developing neocortex um, determining the functional organization of the neocortex? And for this, we use little short-tailed opossums. They are models of early blindness. Um, we bilaterally nucleate or remove the eyes when these animals are embryos. So it's just like basically a little layer of skin. We let them grow up, and we look at the connections. We look at um, the functional organization of their brain. And what we see is that here's visual cortex in this animal. This is the front of the brain, and this is the top of the brain. And all of what would normally be visual cortex, which is in blue here, is now processing inputs from the somatosensory and auditory system. So we've totally functionally changed the reorganization of this neocortex. And if we look at the connections, these are connections. This is, these are visual areas here in blue, primary visual cortex, and it's getting input from other visual structures. These are auditory structures in yellow and somatosensory structures in red. And what we see in our bilateral nucleates is that now the connections of the brain have changed. We've done nothing to the neocortex itself, not one thing. We've simply removed all visual input really early in development. And what we see is this functional takeover and connectional takeover of the developing brain. And if we look at what that 
what that region is representing, what we, which would normally be visual, it's representing the head and the vibrissae. It's we basically, I want to say we've made a platypus, right? So something like 80% of the neocortex is now processing inputs from this stuff, from the vibrissae and the snout and the face. Um, and we did, and of course, it's great to have a big brain and, and, and transform the neocortex, but you have to ask yourself, what does this mean for behavior, which is the target of selection? And so we had trained discrimination tasks and natural behavior, and I wanted to show you the natural behavior because it's really cool. Um, these animals, be, they end up becoming uh, super tactile animals. They do really, really well with tactile discrimination tasks. This is a ladder rung task where the animal starts on, at one end of this ladder and moves to the other end, and you train him to walk on evenly spaced rungs. And then what you do is... <laughs> you then space the rungs unevenly, and you have him do this task again. And I'm going to show you some movies of this. This is a normal animal. This is a bilateral nucleate. And this is really pretty beautiful. So here's what a normal animal looks like. And you can score them based on when their legs fall through and how well they do. You'll, you'll see this. And, you, you know, his legs fall through. Oops. 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 You know, he was trained, but this is now a novel task. Here's the bilateral nucleate. No, no eyes whatsoever, right? So it's never had any access to visual input ever. And so this is what the bilateral nucleate looks like on this novel task. Look at this. Bam. Okay. This is good. Okay, so we propose that because the whiskers are so important, you have this huge representation of the whiskers now, we trim the whiskers. I know, I know, I know. They grew back, they grew back, okay? But check this out. This is so cool. Look, this is the same animal with his whiskers trimmed. And here's what happens, right? So with this, this is really cool because you are showing this enormous brain change and behavior change and that, that the, the two coincide. Um, and just to end this little tiny portion of it, so blindness is not an absence of light because this animal has a fun functional respecification, changes in cortical and subcortical connections, um, a, a really big magnification of its fibrosity. So um, your, its entire nervous system has been kind of rewired and reorganized based on this lack of sensory input. But that's pretty, that's, that's sort of like taking a sledgehammer to the system. Let me show you something a little more subtle. This is natural differences in rearing conditions, uh, cultural transmission of rearing style. Um, and these are voles. Voles are biparental. They both, both parents rear their young. And we can measure differences in total tactile contact of the young. We, we look at high contact parents and low contact parents. And important to remember is that high contact offspring show differences in behavior. High contact offspring become high contact parents. And if if you cross-foster them on the day of birth, you take low-contact parents and put them with high-contact parents, they become high-contact parents. So this is a social transmission of a rearing style. Um, and if we look at the connections of their somatosensory cortex, particularly in the regions of the body that are being touched, we see that connections are mostly the same. This, the, the, this is an injection site, and these are connections to it. But we also see differences in connections. And remember, this is pretty subtle, and differences in connections of frontal cortex as well. So what factors contribute to the phenotype? So, that, so I'm just showing you a much more subtle example um, um, of, of, of the role of sensory input in, in shaping the brain and shaping connectivity. Well, genes definitely contribute to um, cortical sheet size, cortical field size, cortical connections, peripheral morphology. And cellular mechanisms involved in plasticity may be genetically specified, which allows the environment to impact some of these same things. I can change cortical field size, cortical connectivity, peripheral morphology, which I showed in these experiments. And I've given you examples from the bill of the platypus, and I suggest that this, the same thing is occurring in humans. But what about things like social learning, language, and culture? Um, I would suggest that the best way to think about these as these are simply complex patterns of physical stimuli 
that are impinging on the developing nervous system. So mother's love is temperature, touch, cadence of a voice, nothing more. And this can impact how the brain wires itself. Um, uh, It can impact size of cortical fields and connections of cortical fields. So I'm going to end a little bit with this. This is a sort of human evolution, um, not quite a cladogram. And on the bottom is environment and social context. And on the top, I had, it's sort of truncated here, um, is, is meant to be sort of morphology or genes. And modern hand is proposed to have been around this for about 700,000 years. But what's really pretty fascinating is that until recently, we were using stone tools. So we had, the, and big brains happened way back here, right? So we had the big brain, we had the modern hand, but we were not doing what we're doing with the modern hand. And if you believe that all behavior is, is generated by the brain, and I believe that all behavior is generated by the brain, then the brain must have changed. And if the brain didn't change by changes in DNA sequence, it must have changed by activity-dependent mechanisms and or culture. And so... You know, it's hard to believe that the Industrial Revolution was less than 300 years ago. And if you look, we've actually changed the scape of this planet. And now we have daily and prolonged interactions with computers and machines and tools, really sophisticated tools. And I'll end by saying, we are common and pearl creatures constructed by genes, bodies, behaviors, and environmental context. And I think, you know, you can look for the, the genes that are distinguishing humans. I think you're going to find only a few, maybe some involved in expansion of the neocortex. But humans have evolved an extraordinary capacity to construct our neocortex um, over the course of a prolonged infancy and childhood, allowing for rapid phenotypic change, even within a single generation. I would say that if Leah Krupitz were born 30 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 300,000 years ago, I wouldn't be Leah Krupitz or you know, have, like, hitting a rock or using a spear. I would be a different brain. Um, we have a remarkable fluid brain-body interface with the environment, such that tools and machines can extend our embodiment and our, our peripersonal space and expand the loop between our brains, our bodies, and the world. And I think this has made us unique biohybrid creatures whose brains adapt and bootstrap themselves with the technologies that we give rise to, and for better or worse, with whom our futures are incre- increasingly entwined. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.